Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted, and I mean that, to be back in conversation today with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, award-winning investigative journalist and author of the new book, Lyme, The First Epidemic of Climate Change, from Island Press. Mary Beth Pfeiffer has won dozens of New York Publishers Association and State AP Awards and has been honored with three national headliner awards, a Sigma Delta Chi Award for Investigative Reporting, the AP Managing Editor's Public Service Award, and awards from the Scripps Howard Foundation, Inter-America Press Association, and the Gannett Company. She has written for the Poughkeepsie Journal, the New York Times Magazine, the Village Voice, Boston Globe, Miami Herald, Hartford Current, Des Moines Register, and USA Weekend Magazine, a graduate of Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. She resides in Ulster County. Welcome, Mary Beth Pfeiffer. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. I am equally delighted to be here. Well, we have to say, you know, you're a great hero for so many of us because for all of these years we've been reading you and your groundbreaking writing in the Poughkeepsie Journal and in other places, so it's wonderful to see you. Mary Beth, let's start with the book. The book is Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. Let's start right with the uh, title. A lot of people are writing about Lyme now. Why is your book different? My book puts Lyme disease in a, an environmental and medical context. I call it the 20,000-foot view of Lyme disease. We know, because there's a ton of science out there that's been done, that ticks are moving around the planet. The planet is warming, and as it gets warmer, we see ticks moving further and further north in the northern hemisphere, further and further south in the southern hemisphere. They are um, exploding in countries like Russia, in China, in Australia. In Western Europe, there is every bit as serious a problem with Lyme disease as there is here in America, primarily in the Northeast and the Midwest. But what we have also seen in the last 20 years alone is that the number of counties in the continental United States, 3,000 counties, the, the number has doubled in that time in terms of these Lyme disease carrying ticks being able to live there being able to breed, being able to have lots and lots of babies. One mama tick can have 2,000 babies. And, you know, in short, ticks love the weather these days, and they are prospering in in this new world. And, you know, I I based my book on science. I I read 300 scientific papers, which are referenced in the book. And that's a great deal of science, by the way. Um, I'd also mention that it's a very readable book. I took this science and put it in a journalist, journalistic kind of language, in a, in a presentation that people, regular old folks, could understand. And science is telling us ticks are living where they never could before. So that's the first thing. I look at Lyme disease from that big picture, from the ticks moving around the planet. But there's another very significant trend, a very uh, significant aspect of this disease that I look at. And that, of course, is the health implications of Lyme disease. And by and large, I think we can say that we don't have this disease figured out. That the truisms, the dogma, if you will, that surrounds the treatment of Lyme disease 
is very much open to question. There have been studies that have shown that the way we treat Lyme disease, the short courses of antibiotics, basically the Lyme guidelines, say 10 to 28 days, and the Lyme pathogen is essentially killed in your system, is open to question. That whole notion that you know a, a bottle of doxycycline will cure you may not be true. So that is really what propelled me to look further into Lyme disease. And what I wanted to do was, as I said, put it in some kind of context. It's being driven by climate change. It's being driven by the harm, frankly, that we've done to the planet. But the reason we ought to care about the fact that these ticks are moving all over the place is they are carrying diseases, and we need to know about that. We need to care about that because medicine, frankly, does not have this figured out. Well, there are a number of ways I want to go. Let's start with the word epidemic. Is this an epidemic? Officially, the Centers for Disease Control calls this an endemic, which means that it moves to a certain area, it sets up shop, and it doesn't leave. So that when the ticks move in, they bring the pathogens, people start to get infected. We call that an endemic area. And much of the uh, United States is now endemic. It is primarily the Northeast and Midwest, but there are endemic states in North Carolina, in the South, um, even in California. But somehow that word endemic doesn't have a lot of urgency attached to it. So I prefer the word epidemic. It is um, accurate in terms of linguistics in the dictionary. From a scientific point of view, it's an endemic. But there's little doubt that it's moving to places around the world and could, in fact, be called a pandemic because it is in so many other countries. I came across some really interesting science as I was writing the book. Science coming out of China which as we know is not the most open society in terms of communication, in terms of expression. But the scientific papers that I was reading there and the statements that were made in them frankly surprised me about um, one paper in particular about infections in the outskirts of Beijing said, this is a very serious problem and it is underappreciated and underdiagnosed. That was an amazing statement to me. So that was the first question I had. And by the way, everybody, the name of the book is Lyme, The First Epidemic of Climate Change, and it's by Mary Beth Pfeiffer. Mary Beth, I guess the next question is, you speak with such passion about this. Has it affected you personally? Well, I'd say yes and no. The way it affected me personally, perhaps, is I had a very mild case. I had actually two mild cases of Lyme disease. But I am not a chronic Lyme sufferer, and I put that word chronic Lyme in quotes because it is a very, very controversial notion, which we can talk about later. But it also has affected me personally in that I have a different relationship with nature as a result of this disease and as mm. a result of this threat. And I think that many people who live where we live in the Northeast have a similar viewpoint of the out of doors now. So you don't go out of doors? I, I certainly do. I will not give that up. So you have a garden? 
I have a garden. I have a large field, an old cornfield, right across the dead end lane where I live. Mm -hmm. And we actually own a little part of it and the neighbor who owns another part of it. Together we mow a path around it all year, all season long when the grasses are growing to enable us to walk through that field. We stay on that path, though, and when I take my grandchildren for a walk on that path, I am constantly hounding them, stay away from those tall grasses at the edge of the path, because that's where the danger is. And so personally, yes, it has affected me, not because I'm sick from Lyme disease or because my family members are sick, but because it is such a constant presence. We have to watch out for these ticks when we go outside, and that has changed the way I view nature and consequently how I'm telling my my grandchildren that they should view nature. It's something to fear as well as enjoy. You're right, of course. Now, what ways can you protect yourself? We know about, you know, the long pants and the socks mm-hmm. over the, you know, but it seems to me, I know an awful lot of people who've done all of that and still get attacked. Well, there's no perfect way is the short answer. In the last chapter of my book, I, I uh, talk about a, quote, lime-free world and how to get it. <laughs> I'm not sure we can actually achieve that, but we can protect ourselves. One of the best ways that I found to protect myself, that I found research to underscore this, is by uh, um, using permethrin, by soaking our shoes, our socks, and even our pants in this chemical called permethrin. It's made out of, it's a synthetic derivative of the substance that's in a a, um, chrysanthemum flower. Hmm. And it has been found to be extremely effective. And how do you get it? You can order it online. I think you can get it at a hardware store. And what you do is you spray the the socks, the pants, the shoes. And, and by the way, gardeners do this all the time, people who work out of doors. And you let it dry, and then you can wear it. And you can wash the pants several times, many times is my understanding. And it will not come out. And there's a, there's a great researcher at the University of Rhode Island by the name of Tom Mather. And he did a study of just socks and shoes soaked with permethrin. And he found that people who wore these were 74 times less likely to be bitten by ticks than right. those who went without. So that convinced me. Um, so this year I'm going to do that. I haven't done that in the past. So Mary Beth Pfeiffer, I wanted to ask you, are there human typologies, for want of a better word, who are more likely to get Lyme disease than other humans? Are some people more vulnerable? That has been theorized. There isn't much in the medical literature right now about genetic predisposition to Lyme disease, but I have spoken to many families in which virtually every member of the family is affected by Lyme disease and affected in a big way. Uh, very sick, very advanced cases of Lyme disease. So these are questions we can't answer right now. We do know that a share of people remains ill for weeks or months and sometimes years after being treated for Lyme disease. And we don't really know what's driving that. There are theories about that as well. It may be some sort of genetic predisposition. It also may be that the way we're treating Lyme disease isn't working very well for everybody, that the frontline antibiotics that are being used 
are not sufficient to kill the Lyme bug. Got a better idea? (laughs) Well, it's possible that we just need to use these courses of antibiotics for longer terms. That's one of the ideas. And just the, the, the foundation for what I just said, that they, that they might not be working, is being shown in new research that's coming out of major universities in the U.S., like uh, Northeastern, like Tulane, like Johns Hopkins, Tufts. And what these researchers are doing is, in one case at Tulane, they infected monkeys, rhesus monkeys, or small couple-of-pound monkeys yeah. with Lyme disease. They waited a while. They treated them with doxycycline. Then a couple of months later, uh, this researcher by the name of Monica Embers put ticks on the monkeys. And the idea was to see if the ticks would become infected in much the same way that ticks out in the wild when they bite mice become infa- infected. Mice are the prime place where ticks become infected and then go on to bite us. Well, sure enough. In you mean the tick gets the disease from the mouse? Exactly. Okay. The mouse is what they call the reservoir okay. of Lyme disease. There are other ways that they get it, other mammals, for example. But primarily in our area, it's, it's mice. But anyway, lo and behold, with Monica Ember's monkeys, two out of the five of them got infected. The ticks came back fat, engorged, lots of blood from the the monkeys, and within them they found Lyme spirochetes. So they found that the spirochete did, in fact, survive antibiotic treatment in monkeys. It was a very significant finding. Then other tests have been done, other experiments in Johns Hopkins Northeastern, in which they expose the spirochete to antibiotics, the everyday antibiotics that we use. Wow, lo and behold, some persister cells survive. Mm. Then they tried even um, higher-level antibiotics, the kind that you would use in life-threatening situations. Still, persister cells survived. In a case at Northeastern, they finally threw a, a, uh, carcin- a, a, a drug that is used to treat cancer against these um, bugs, and finally they were able to kill the spirochete. So this is not a bug that is easy to kill. We know that from from these experiments, primarily in the last five years, about 20 scientific papers have been put out basically saying this. It's been around for a while. We've known from older research that they that, that the uh, Lyme bug survives in dogs, in gerbils, in rats, and other mammals. Now, you so, make the point... We all thought it was very exciting when we heard that a place around here, Lyme, Connecticut, mm-hmm. was the home of Lyme disease. Turns out it's been here for millions of years, right? It definitely has. Um, they have found ticks encased in amber, like maybe 15 to 20 million year old amber. They cut it apart. They put it under a, an electron microscope. And within this tiny tick, they can actually visualize coiled spirochetes. The spirochete is is sort of the shape of a corkscrew. And lo and behold, there it was from 15 to 20 million years ago. They also found a mummy that emerged from the ice in a melting glacier in the Alps about 20 years ago. It was a hunter who was killed with an arrow to his shoulder. And he was found to have Lyme disease, 5,500 years old, he is uh, estimated to be. When you say he mummy, was, but they found him in the ice. He was mummified mm-hmm. in mummified. the ice, oh, yes. Yeah. And, you know, they found all sorts of other things out about him, but 
one thing was that they found that he had Lyme disease. And by the way, he was carrying a satchel with a, uh, a fungus, a kind of mushroom that is known to have antibiotic properties. So it's possible that way back then they had figured out a you treatment went to the doctor. For, for Lyme disease. <laughs> so it's been around for a long time. Lyme disease did not cause, I mean, uh, sorry, climate change did not cause this epidemic. But it is, without a doubt, pushing it around the planet because it is enabling ticks to, to live in places that they couldn't live before. Now, Lyme scholars are famous for fighting with each other. And there's a question over, you know, what that fight is about. In other words, is it that some people believe that the Lyme is the number one thing? And you, as you mentioned in your book, very glad to see it. There are other diseases carried by the same, by the same tick. What are these fights about? Well, the prime controversy about Lyme disease, <clears throat> and it is a very controversial disease, is whether or not it is chronic. Whether or not the Lyme bug survives after antibiotic treatment. Whether or not it stays in your body. And the traditionalists believe no. It does not survive. 10 to 28 days of antibiotic treatment are sufficient to kill this infection. But you don't believe that? I certainly believe that there is a lot of science to question that. Because I read 300 scientific papers, I've come to think a little Which, bit. by the way, I must tell our, our listeners, you're quite famous for. That's why you won all those awards. <laughs> you don't go half-baked into any one of your projects. Well, thank you. I, I do do very thorough research. But I kind of think like a scientist now. And what I would say, as far as I would go, is to say there is a lot of research to question the basic Lyme paradigm that exists in America. It is too pat, it is too black and white to say that 10 to 28 days of doxycycline kills this disease. We have those experiments in monkeys, in dogs, in various rodents, and in test tubes, where they tried everything short of hitting this organism with a hammer. And they weren't able to kill all the persister cells. Well, now, there are many people who say, tell me on the street corner or wherever else, look, I had Lyme disease. I caught it very early. It's gone. But there are other people who say, I didn't catch it in time, and that's too bad because once you don't catch it in time, it really does become chronic. What are you thinking about that? Those are the people who do not fit into this model of Lyme disease as it is framed in America. It is framed as easy to diagnose, easy to treat. And basically, when they say easy to diagnose, they say, well, you get the rash. We can tell if you bullseye. are infected if you get the rash. Yes, it's called a bullseye rash, but unfortunately, it doesn't always present as a bullseye. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it looks like a spider bite, and sometimes doctors have even told people, that's a spider bite, you don't need treatment. Sometimes it's solid. Sometimes there are several rashes. Sometimes it's huge and small and it's got very defined edges and not. So that makes diagnosis in the early stages very difficult as well. The other thing is we don't have a really good test for Lyme disease. We don't have a good test at all. The test that we use now, the only approved test since 1994, is the two-tiered test. And it fails often. Early in the disease, it fails about 70% of the time. 
So 30% of the time, you may test positive when you actually have the disease. Mary Beth Pfeiffer, what are the uh, what are the warning signs that somebody may have it? I know at least on one or two occasions I've gone to the emergency room mm-hmm. to get tested because I felt sluggish. What are the symptoms that we should be aware of? Well, the early symptoms are typically uh, described as flu-like, where you get fever, chills, you get aches, pains, you just don't feel well, you're tired. You may also get the rash. But the other problem with Lyme disease is it's got so many presentations, particularly as it progresses, that it's very hard to pin down. And it's, I think, frankly, overwhelming for medicine to, to deal with. Um, it, you know, sometimes people even have strokes who have had Lyme disease. It goes to the heart. It can cause Lyme carditis. We had a case in Poughkeepsie where a 17-year-old kid had gone to a sleepaway camp in Rhode Island for several weeks. He came back. He was ill. He went to the doctor a couple of times, was tested for Lyme disease. It came back negative. He died. A couple of weeks later, he collapsed on his front lawn because the Lyme spirochetes had gone to his heart. This is a, a horrible tragedy and an example of the failure of the test that we have now for Lyme disease. The other flaw with that test, there are many of them, but one of them is it can't distinguish current from past infection. So you have these antibodies in your body. They stay there for years and years, possibly forever. So your doctor may be prone to saying, well, you, you don't really have Lyme disease now because I don't really see the you know, distinctive rash. I don't see the you know, other symptoms. Go home. You're not sick. And this often happens. Doctors are sometimes fearful because of the way the disease, disease has been presented to them in the medical literature of diagnosing Lyme disease. I, I talk in the, the, the speech that I give um, about the book about thr- 30 scientific papers having been published since the 1990s on the overdiagnosis of Lyme disease. 30 papers. Basically, in one, they found about half of cases that were positive in one laboratory were negative in another. It led to a great deal of copycat science. Don't overdiagnose, don't falsely diagnose was the message that doctors got. There were five papers I found on the underdiagnosis of Lyme disease, which, by the way, is far more dangerous than overdiagnosing and giving a round of doxycycline. Underdiagnosis can lead to life altering changes. I want to again give the name of the book. It's Mary Beth Pfeiffer, Lyme, The First Epidemic of Climate Change. So every night, the automatic lights in my uh, yard go on, and there are five deer, <laughs> six deer sometime. And that's in the middle of a town, um, not out in the country, middle of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And we know that they're in deer, mice. I mean, it's a controversial question, but should we be doing more in the way of eradication of these animals that carry the disease? I would say, as far as deer go, that it won't help to cull the deer population. The reason being this, one deer can support very many ticks. So ticks will find a host for their adult stage of life. 
it will find a deer, but it will also find other animals. It doesn't necessarily have to be a deer. The other thing about deer, and I know there are plenty of them out there, and I know they are associated with this disease greatly. Uh, you, in is, fact, have a deer on the front cover of your, of your I book. I do. Deer definitely play a role in this epidemic. They are the place that I call the marital bed <laughs> for ticks. Adult ticks breed on deer. That's where they go to kind of finish out their, their life's mission and basically propagate the species. But again... We're not talking about killing all deer. We're talking about culling the population. It would not be possible to kill all deer. It just wouldn't. And like I said, one deer, several deer, you'll still have some deer, and the ticks will find them, and they will be able to propagate. But they'll also find other mammals, and this is probably the key thing. When a tick bites a deer, one in 10 of those ticks will become infected by the deer. 10% of ticks will become infected. When a tick bites a mouse, 9 in 10 will become infected. You do not want the ticks to be biting something else, some other mammal out there. That's interesting. Because there is a very much higher percentage of ticks that will become infected with the pathogen if they, they bite another mammal. So the thought is that deer might actually even be playing a role in diluting Lyme disease, in diluting the presence of the organism in the ticks out there. So we have to be very careful. You know, there's, there's no doubt that deer play a role in this epidemic, but the fact that they are, are, are less prone to infect ticks is very important, and it needs to be kept in mind. Mary Beth Pfeiffer, let's talk about weather a little bit. When it's really cold out I think that reduces the deer population, other animals, a little bit. I mean, we've had a tough winter this winter. Is that is something you've thought about in terms of pop climate change and what's going on in this world? It's true that the ice caps are melting, but it's also true we had one of the roughest winters in Great Barrington I can ever remember. We did have a great deal of snow this year, but ticks actually like snow cover. Uh -huh. They burrow deep underneath the leaf litter. And they get a nice little layer of snow, and that's just fine for them. They emerge happy and healthy in the spring. So it's really not a problem to have snow cover. It's also not a problem for them in many ways not to have it because they do go under the leaf litter. That's where they hide. They burrow into the, the dirt and, and the you know mashed-up leaves, and they stay there to emerge in, in the spring. So... We do know that when it's warmer that we have, you know, that, that the ticks are moving as a result of Lyme disease. But these vacillations in seasonal, you know, temperatures and seasonal amounts of snow don't seem to affect them. It's the overall trend that we're seeing of climate change that is affecting them. Now, you've mentioned uh, snow, but what about cold, cold, cold? When we moved to the Berkshires, you know, we had five days... 20 below. Does that kill them? These are good questions, and these are research questions. And at the Cary Arboretum, they actually got a grant to do a study. What kills ticks? What are the conditions under which ticks will be knocked off? 
So we're trying to tease out the various factors of climate change. And what they're doing is driving these um, cylindrical kinds of things into the ground where they can actually pick up maybe a, a few inches of dirt, maybe a foot of dirt, pull it out and see under this condition that we're experiencing right at this moment, how many ticks are still alive and how many died. So we're trying to figure these things out. You know, as far as climate change driving this, we've also got a problem with ticks emerging in Northern California. Well, it's always been pretty warm in Northern California relative to where we live. The question is, why more ticks there? Another factor that drives tick, ticks and that ticks like is humidity. Ticks need it to be rather moist to survive, or otherwise they desiccate, they dry out, they die. So we're associating that with you know, the thriving of the tick population. We're trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. Um, in California, there's even some suggestion that the irrigation of many areas, the fact that we are inserting water into places, is, is allowing more ticks to, to live and prosper. Now, before we talked a little bit about some of the controversies in the Lyme area, one of them is over how important the other things besides Lyme are when they get carried by the tick. I know you've written about it in the book, and the book is Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change, but how important are those other diseases that are carried? Those diseases are extremely important. First of all, I would say that the trials, the clinical trials that that were done to determine how we treat Lyme disease didn't consider co-infections at all. And what are those co-infections just for the... Well, we're, we're talking about uh, babesiosis, mm -hmm. which is akin to malaria, which, by the way, will not respond to antibiotics. So it's a whole different approach. We have to diagnose, we have to look for it first, and then we have to diagnose it and treat it differently from Lyme disease. And by the way, when Lyme and Babesia, the Babesia organism, are combined in a, in a human being, the net effect is that the Lyme disease is much more serious and much more difficult to treat. So combined together, these are much more serious and challenging problems. So can they treat it? We, they can treat it. We and do what do have, they treat it with? With anti-malarial drugs, uh, basically. Yeah. Okay. But we have other organisms that are in, in ticks as well. Anaplasmosis is a very serious one. It's, it's a very serious acute disease. And what's can the cause name there? Again, one more anaplasmosis okay. can cause very high fever, ehrlichiosis, very similar to that. Luckily, if you have these and you're being treated for Lyme disease, they do respond to antibiotics, but sometimes different antibiotics. So a doctor has to know to look for those diseases, those pathogens. Another one that has emerged in this area in recent years is the Powassan virus. It is a very scary thing, which causes neurological problems, which can leave people unable to walk or speak, can rob them of some cognitive function. And in 5 to 10% of cases, it is uh, fatal. Wow. It, we actually had three cases in Saratoga County last summer. So it's in New York. It's in about 1% of ticks. It doesn't mean that in 1% of cases when you're bitten, you will get this organism because sometimes people are able to fight them off. Their, their immune system does what it should do, and it kills them. Which reminds me, when you see a tick on your body, what do you do? You should have special tweezers. 
to remove it. These are fine-tipped tweezers that you basically use by inserting them sideways uh, along the neck of the tick and pulling the tick out by the neck part so that you don't squeeze the tick, essentially. You don't want to use your fingers to pull that tick out. Because if you do squeeze the tick, essentially what you might be doing is inserting the junk, the contents of the gut of the tick right into your body. You want to avoid that at all costs. But there are a lot of these, you know, uh, put a match to it kind of methods and, and put alcohol or Vaseline. Uh, no, you need to use a special tweezer just made for removing ticks. Now, Mary Beth, one of the things that has always confused me about this is when I ask what a tick looks like, people tell me, doctors tell me and others, that sometimes they're as small as if you're putting a pencil down on your skin. Now, you can't. How, do you, how are you going to be looking for how to pull it out by its neck when it's almost unseeable. This is a very big problem because basically they are not seen many times. Larval ticks are almost impossible to see. I have gone flagging for ticks. That's where we use a a big white corduroy sheet on a pole and rub it against the ground and try and catch ticks. And we picked up some larval ticks and I couldn't see them. (laughs) They had to be pointed out to me by the biologist that I was with, exceedingly tiny. The larval tick really isn't the one we need to worry about so much, though. That's the one that bites the mouse, gets infected, then turns into a nymphal tick. That's the stage that is most dangerous for people. And that's a tick which is, you know, a little bigger than a period at the end of a sentence. When it engorges after it bites you, then you might see it because it becomes, uh, you know, a hundred times bigger than it normally is. But um, we want to get to that, to the point where we catch it before it gets to, you know, having engorged and having, you know, had a feast on our blood. Well, let's assume you find an engorged tick on your neck or some other place Mm -hmm. and you just pull it off. You haven't done it the right way, according to Mary Beth Pfeiffer, the author of Lyme. That's a dangerous time, right? Then you really do need medical help. Yes, I would strongly suggest getting medical help at that point. And by the way, there is another kind of tweezer thing device. It's not just the fine-tipped. There's something that, that looks like a little a V-shaped kind of thing that pulls the tick off. That would also do it. But anyway, if you do find an engorged tick on you and you do successfully remove it, I would suggest going to the doctor. But again, here's you a... You want to keep the tick too, right? Yes, keep the tick. Um, you can send it away. There are certain places you can send it away to have tested. Um, you may have to pay for that or you may have to wait months if you don't pay for it. But Or you may have to really suffer if you ignore the whole thing. <laughs> definitely. Don't ignore it. But the other controversy about Lyme disease is that it can easily be prevented after a tick bite. And the common wisdom is the prevailing um, advice in the medical literature is a single dose of doxycycline and you won't get Lyme disease. That is the advice of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which has written the Lyme disease guidelines, the, the guidelines that I think are very much open to question because they endorse a bad test, because they endorse only short courses of antibiotics, and because they also endorse this single dose of doxycycline. The International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, called ILADS for short, 
has its own set of guidelines, and it recommends 20 days of doxycycline if you pull a tick off you, if you have been bitten by a tick. And they cite significant research that's been done on mice that shows that mice will go on to develop Lyme disease after being bitten and after being treated just with that short one dose of doxycycline. So again, you have these dueling views of how to manage this disease. And the single dose of doxycycline recommendation is based on one study. It's a short study. It wasn't terribly statistically significant in terms of what they they found in terms of efficacy of heading off Lyme disease cases. So again, this is something that's open to question. And I would say ask your doctor for a couple of weeks of doxycycline. Now you say ask your doctor, which doctor? I don't mean W-I-T-C-H. I mean, which doctor do you go to? Do you go to neurologists? Do you go to general practitioners? Who, who does this stuff? Well, for something like this, you would normally go to your primary care physician. And this is part of the problem. Primary care physicians are very busy people. They don't have time to figure this out. They don't have time to read those 300 papers that I read or to talk to the scientists about the emerging research. And the problem is that that reviews come out in the medical literature. One of them just came out a couple of weeks ago in the European in a European journal. And these reviews sort of sum up for very busy doctors what the state of the art is, what they should do in cases like this. And in these reviews, time and again, it is repeated. The test works. The short course antibiotics are the only thing you should use, and anything longer doesn't work. But what I am saying in my book, and I, I'm taking this on the road and hammering away at this message, is that there is another view of Lyme disease. There is a view of Lyme disease that says this is not so easy to diagnose. This is not so easy to treat or to cure. And that other side, which is based on science as well, needs to be recognized and needs to be acknowledged, and doctors need to start incorporating it in their own practices. And on that that, um, study that was in the European Journal that I just mentioned, it repeated the dogma. It repeated, use the test, use antibiotics in short courses, but it made no mention of this emerging science that is showing that the Lyme spirochete may survive the very antibiotics that we use to, quote, unquote, cure it. So there are people who are listening right now and say, okay, Mary Beth, what's the answer then? The answer is we have to make our powers that be aware that there is another side to this. I get the other side. I just don't get the cure. Well, You know, you may want to just go into your doctor and say, I've done a little bit of research myself, and I don't think that one dose of doxycycline is enough. Now, the other thing I would say about that is doctors are also seeing very complex and complicated cases of Lyme disease. They are seeing that the single dose or the one month for, for a confirmed diagnosis isn't working. They're also seeing that they're having problems in their own families. I spoke to one Lyme disease doctor, a doctor who treats outside the guidelines, who has treated 100 doctors. 
This is starting to move through society. It's affecting power brokers. There are people in Congress. I spoke to another doctor who has treated people in Congress. This is how AIDS ultimately was, was um, you know, came to a point where a lot of attention was paid to it and a lot of money was thrown at it. And this is finally starting to happen with Lyme disease. After years of minimizing this disease and saying it's no big deal and it can be treated, things are starting to change. You know, that said, Alan, it's not changing fast enough because most doctors still rely on a bad test and still rely on 10 to 28 days of doxycycline. Okay, so if we were charting the way this thing is growing, or as you say, the first epidemic of climate change, uh, Lyme disease, by Mary Beth Pfeiffer, if we were charting it, which way is the graph going? In other words, is it going so badly that if we don't do anything, as you're suggesting, we are in real, real, real trouble? Mm-hmm. Well, the chart is going up. There were some something on the order of 36,000 cases in 2016, the most recent year for which we have uh, data. The CDC acknowledges that only one in 10 cases is reported, so that's something on the order of 360,000 cases. The numbers are going up year after year. And do we know what the unreported casualties are? That's a good question because we don't have Finally. we don't have a good test for Lyme disease. The the CDC acknowledges that there's ten times you know more underreporting, that namely people who actually do test positive, and then there are many people who simply don't test positive, who are forced to seek care from other physicians who are willing to use alternative tests to diagnose them. We don't really know how big that population of people is. So let me get this straight, and I'm sure everybody's yelling at the radio that I should ask you this question. Let's assume that physicians outside of the normal way of doing this are able to identify what you've got. What should they do, bottom line? Well, what they do do is often they will give you longer courses Mm -hmm. of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. They will sometimes give you intravenous antibiotics. They try to avoid them, and that's in a minority of cases, but that's basically the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. It's very strong. It's um, What's the downside, Mary Beth, I'm sorry, of, of having too much antibiotics? You become immune? Antibiotics are something that should be used judiciously. I they, know. they affect your microbiome. They may promote some sort of antibiotic resistance in your system. They are overused in our society generally, but mostly in livestock, I would say. But, you know, that said, they're among the safest drugs out there. They are used in long courses for other diseases, for tuberculosis, for urinary tract infection, for acne. But somehow this artificial line has been drawn on Lyme disease, no more than 28 days and the Lyme spirochete is killed. And because of the the power of the IDSA, and because its precepts have been endorsed by the CDC, because they have published in the New England Journal of Medicine many times, and by the way, one of the authors, one of the original Lyme trials, was an associate editor for 10 years at the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. Because this relatively small group of people have an enormous amount of power. 
things have not been able to move along or to change. Science should be evolving. You know, new science comes out and it questions or builds on or alters old science. With Lyme disease, we have been stuck in one place for a long time. And the reason is that there is this very entrenched dogma. And there are power brokers at the highest levels in the IDSA, in the Centers for Disease Control, at the New England Journal of Medicine, and other major journals who are allowing it to stay in place. The book is Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. It's Mary Beth Pfeiffer. Okay, Mary Beth, some one of those people you just mentioned is listening to this right now, and they are angry. <laughs> They're angry because you're calling them out, and you're saying you're not doing your job. What would you have them do? Well, I'm calling them out, not because they are all wrong. Mm -hmm. The version of Lyme disease that they see is basically the early, acute, Lyme-only cases. And those generally do respond to treatment. People generally do get well. I was one of them. But they have a very limited view and definition of Lyme disease. There's another view out there. And it says that Lyme is complicated by other tick-borne co-infections, which have not been studied in terms of treatment, certainly no clinical trials. It's complicated by uh, poor tests. We know we need a better test. We have known this for years. And that side needs to be validated. It needs to be heard. We can't keep going on with this, you know, short courses, good test, done, you know, everything's fine. Mary Beth Pfeiffer, in your book, Lyme, you take this view about what we need to do. Now, there's been a lot of literature on Lyme, people writing a lot of books. What are you coming up with in your book that they don't come up with in theirs? A lot of books out there address um, how to get help for Lyme, a lot of self-help kinds of books. Um, there's everything from herbal treatments to detoxification to, you know, just eating better and lots of different books that give people advice on Lyme disease. And do you call BS on that? I don't, because we don't really know what works for Lyme disease. And this gets me to another problem Please. that we have with this. You know, when, when the AIDS epidemic emerged, it took a couple of years. It took some agitating. But it finally got to the point where the money was spent and infrastructure was built. Labs opened up. Um, medical education was funded so that There's you, a constituent had, group. you had scientists. Yes. So in other words, the gay community came together in large part. Mm -hmm. They got together. They did what they had to do. They shackled themselves to legislative shares, things mm -hmm. like that. That's not happening with Lyme disease. Well, yeah. The money was spent on HIV, and a solution was found. We now have Cocktails. HIV basically being a chronic disease that's very manageable that allows people to live. To, to live. And the money just was never spent on Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And instructive of your point here and your question, I was given a sheaf of CDC emails, which is sort of a gold mine for an investigative reporter. I got 3,000 pages of emails, but one of them was very telling. And in it, a, uh, someone at the National Institutes of Health was retiring after many years of 
managing Lyme issues. And so he was writing to his colleagues saying, okay, I'm retiring, I'm calling it a day. There's just one thing I won't miss, the Lyme loonies. This is the way that these many support groups around the country, hundreds of them, representing thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, has been seen by government. They are an annoyance. They are crazy. Lime loonies. They there are ways to say, let's get it straight. They are crazy or they... Or they are viewed that way. They viewed are that viewed way. that way. They have been viewed that way. Well, are some of them crazy? So if you have Beetlejuice, you can... Well, some of them are very emotional because they have a disease. They go to the doctor. The doctor doesn't recognize that that disease exists. They may go to... I've spoken to people who've gone to 10 and 20 doctors, and they'll come away with painkillers, antidepressants, tests, you know, for uh, every other such thing except tick-borne disease, and they'll be given diagnoses like fibromyalgia rheumatoid arthritis, chronic fatigue syndrome, things that might that usually represent just a constellation of symptoms, but not a real thing. I even interviewed a doctor who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and she was treated for three years with drugs that basically suppress your immune system. And how was she presenting? She had a lot of body pain and yeah. things that could be mistaken for um, for my, multiple sclerosis, yeah. but that were, was, in fact, Lyme disease. She did research on her own, and she got treated for Lyme disease. She got better, and she became a Lyme practitioner as a result. So let me get this straight. The doctor who was retiring, who said that the one thing that he was not going to miss were the Lyme loonies, mm-hmm. he had a point? No, he did not have a point. He was maybe oversimplifying. You know, there certainly are, as I said, people who are very emotional about this disease, who have been turned away by doctor after doctor, who are demanding change. But that characterization of the Lyme patients goes back to the early 2000s when people were convinced that medicine had it wrong. Back then, in 2001, there was a an article, a feature article that was published in the New York Times Magazine, and it was called Stalking Dr. Steer. And it was about Alan Steer, who is the major explorer, so to speak, the guy who really discovered Lyme disease in this cluster of mostly children in Lyme, Connecticut. Hmm. He, um, you know, looked at all the symptoms. He studied all the... uh, problems that the people had. He identified the rash as being associated with the disease. He is the father of Lyme disease. And Lyme patients wrote him emails. They would show up at his speaking engagements. They had um, signs that um, weren't very nice about Dr. Steer. I can't remember exactly what they said. But Dr. Steer supposedly lived in fear of these Lyme patients who were following him from place to place and demanding that he acknowledge their pain. But this was a story that was written in such a way that Dr. Steer was the hero, the beleaguered, you know, sincere, dedicated doctor. And on the other hand, you had these Lyme patients who were rather emotional and angry and maybe crazy, going after him. 
it was a very one-sided article. And I talk about it in my book. And it set a tone that lasted for years. It characterized Lyme patients in such a way. And I'd also say that this whole thing came to the fore around the time that the internet was maturing, Mm -hmm. that people were accessing the internet. So there was a lot put out there about Lyme disease and how we're being done wrong and how we need to organize, and they did organize using the internet. But there was a small share of people who probably went overboard in the way that they characterized the people who set Lyme policy. But it wasn't fair to the rest of them. It did not represent the entire population of Lyme patients, who by and large are very reasonable people. They're very informed people, they are organized people, and they have science behind them today. They have Lyme groups, you know, they have Lyme advocacy organizations, LymeDisease.org being one of them, the Lyme Disease Association of America being the other, there's two major ones. And these are very savvy, science-based organizations that, that are just trying to change this picture. So has the book been reviewed yet? It has been reviewed by Kirkus, by Booklist, and a, a brief review in Nature magazine. What are you getting? I am getting great reviews. Great research, Booklist said, very well written. Basically, what I'm most gratified by these reviews is that they believed what I wrote. They said that I cited information and data and science to support an argument that we very much minimized this disease and we need to take another look and we need to do it fast. Now, Mary Beth Pfeiffer, I have to say, as a professor of some 40 years myself, I love what you do because you are truly a researcher, but you've earned your spurs as a reporter and as an investigative journalist. It seems to me you ought to be in a classroom somewhere, or should have been. Well, I've done that a couple of times. I've taught um, computer-assisted reporting at the State University at New Paltz. It's not what I love, though. I love the chase. I love (laughs) tracking down information. I love talking to people about their personal situations and the science that they do. I love to write. And that's what I do. I welcome the opportunity at times to mentor young journalists, and I've done that. I've had a a, a string of interns that have worked with me that have learned a great deal from me and helped me enormously. But I just am not a teacher. I'm not as comfortable in that milieu as I am. I can't help but ask you one last question, Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and that is that you are an investigative reporter, and you've won all these prizes for investigative reporting, but the shape of the news business and newspapers right now is not very good. Newspapers are collapsing. We're told that they can't really figure out an economic model to keep them going. Uh, you have any insight for us? It's a great worry to me, Alan. I go to newspaper websites and am greatly disappointed when there's even a big snowstorm breaking and I can't get a lot of information. And and people are getting their information in other ways these days that might not be as reliable. 
to say the least. Yeah. yeah, and that's a big worry to me, especially of young people who do not know how to discriminate between what is reliable and what is not on the Internet. And, you know, the, the Poughkeepsie Journal for years supported my research. It's a small paper, and very few small papers put the, the, the resources, the money, the salary um, toward that effort. And I, I am, you know, eternally grateful to the journal for allowing me to do the research that I did. But things are changing in journalism, and there's even less of that kind of research being done today, less investigative reporting. I'm, I'm still happy to see that the New York Times and the Washington Post are doing great work on what's happening in Washington today, but I nonetheless am very concerned about the state of journalism. We've been talking with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, award-winning investigative journalist and author of the new book, Lyme, The First Epidemic of Climate Change, and that's from Island Press. Mary Beth Pfeiffer, always a joy to see you here. Wonderful, wonderful conversation, and we thank you so much for it. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.